Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, read by Simon Anthony, written by Douglas Adams. If you don't know that, you probably don't know the story so far. This is the third part that I'm reading. We've gone to the bit where Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect in the Dentrassi sleeping quarters on the Vogon constructor ship are about to be discovered by the captain, prosthetic Vogon Jelts, who hates hitchhikers. Before this unfortunate meeting, Arthur Dent is being introduced to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book. Arthur asks the book for help about their current situation. This is what the book said. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious and callous. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trowl, without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again and finally buried in soft peat and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your finger down his throat. And the very best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trowl. On no account allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Arthur blinked at it. What a strange book. Uh, How do we get a lift, then? That's the point. It's out of date now, said Ford, sliding the book back into its cover. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition, and one of the things I'll have to include is a bit about how the Vogons now employ Dentrassi cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. A pained expression crossed Arthur's face. But who are the Dentrassi? he asked. Great guys, said Ford. They're the best cooks and the best drink mixers, and they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they'll always help hitchhikers aboard partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons, which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Aldearian dollars a day. And that's my job. Fun, isn't it? Arthur looked lost. It's amazing, he said, and frowned at one of the other mattresses. Unfortunately, I got stuck on the earth for rather longer than I intended, said Ford. I came for a week and got stuck for fifteen years. But how did you get there in the first place, then? Easy. I got a lift with a teaser. A teaser? Yeah. Uh, What is a teaser? Uh, Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets which haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Buzz them? Arthur began to feel that Ford was enjoying making life difficult for him. Yeah, said Ford. They buzz them. They find some isolated spot with very few people around, then land right by some poor soul who no one's ever going to believe, and then they strut up and down in front of them wearing silly antennae on their heads and making beep-beep noises. Rather childish, really. Ford leaned back on the mattress with his hands behind him, furiatingly pleased with himself. Ford, insisted Arthur, I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that. I rescued you from the Earth. And what happened to the Earth? Ah, it's been demolished. Has it? 
said Arthur Leverley. Yes, it just boiled away into space. Look, said Arthur, I'm a bit upset about that. Ford frowned at himself and seemed to roll the thought around his mind. Yes, I can understand that, he said at last. Understand that, shouted Arthur. Understand that? Ford sprang up. Keep looking at the book, he hissed urgently. What? Don't panic. I'm not panicking. Yes, you are. All right, so I'm panicking. What else is there to do? You just come along with me and have a good time. The galaxy's a fun place. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. I beg your pardon, said Arthur, rather politely, he thought. Ford was holding up a small glass jar, which quite clearly had a small yellow fish wriggling around in it. Arthur blinked at him. He wished there was something simple and recognisable he could grasp hold of. He would have felt safe if alongside the dentrassy underwear with Scorn's shallous mattresses and the man from Beetlejuice holding up a small yellow fish and offering it to put it in his ear, he'd been able to see just a small packet of cornflakes. He couldn't, and he didn't feel safe. Suddenly, a violent noise leapt at them from no source that he could identify. He gasped in terror at what sounded like a man trying to gargle whilst fighting off a pack of wolves. Shush, said Ford. Listen, it might be important. Im important? It's the Vogon captain making an announcement on the tannoy. Do you mean that's how Vogons talk? Listen, but I can't speak, Vogon. You don't need to. Just put that fish in your ear. Ford, with a lightning movement, clapped his hand to Arthur's ear, and he had the sudden sickening sensation of the fish slithering deep into his oral tract. Gasping with horror, he scrabbled at his ear for a second or so, but then slowly turned goggle-eyed with wonder. He was experiencing the oral equivalent of looking at a picture of two black silhouetted faces and suddenly seeing it as a picture of a white candlestick, or of looking at a lot of coloured dots on a piece of paper which suddenly resolve themselves to the figure six and mean that your optician is going to charge you a lot of money for a new pair of glasses. He was still listening to the howling gargles. He knew that, only now it had taken on the semblance of perfectly straightforward English. This is what he heard. Should have a good time. This is Ripley. This is your captain speaking, so stop whatever you're doing and pay attention. First of all, I see from our instruments that we have a couple of hitchhikers aboard. Hello, wherever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you are not at all welcome. I worked hard to get where I am today and didn't become captain of a Vogon constructor ship simply so I could turn it into a taxi service for a load of degenerate freeloaders. I have sent out a search party, and as soon as they find you, I'll put you off the ship. If you're very lucky, I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, we are about to jump into hyperspace with the journey to Barnard's star. On arrival, we shall stay in dock for a 72-hour refit, and no one's to leave the ship during that time. I repeat, all planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anybody else should have a good time. Message ends. The noise stopped. Arthur discovered to his embarrassment that he was lying curled up in a small ball on the floor with his arms wrapped around his head. He smiled weakly. Charming man, he said. I wish I had a daughter so I could forbid her to marry one.
You wouldn't need to, said Ford. They got as much sex appeal as a road accident. No, don't move, he added as Arthur began to uncurl himself. You'd better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. So what's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Arthur thought about this. Ford, he said. Yeah? What's this fish doing in my ear? It's translating for you. It's a babel fish. Look it up in the book if you like. He tossed over the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and then curled himself up into a fetal ball to prepare himself for the jump. At that moment, the bottom fell out of Arthur's mind. His eyes turned inside out. His feet began to leak up the top of his head. The room folded flat about him, spun around, shifted out of existence, and left him sliding into his own navel. They were passing through hyperspace. The Babelfish, said the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quietly, is small, yellow, and leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, not from its carrier, but from those around it. It absorbs all unconscious mental frequencies from the brainwave energy to nourish itself with. It then excretes into the mind of its carrier a telepathic matrix formed by combining the conscious thought frequencies with nerve signals picked up from the speech centres of the brain which has supplied them. The practical upshot of all of this is if you stick a babelfish in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech patterns you actually hear decode the brainwave matrix which has been fed into your mind by the babelfish. Now it's such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could have evolved purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as the final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the Babel fish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance, it proves you exist, and so, therefore, by your own arguments, you don't QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanished in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, said man, and for an encore goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Oolong Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book, well, that about wraps it up for God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. Arthur let out a low groan. He was horrified to discover that the kick through hyperspace hadn't killed him. He was now six light years from the place that the Earth would have been if it still existed. The Earth. Visions of it swam sickeningly through his nauseated mind. There was no way his imagination could feel the impact of the whole Earth having gone. It was too big. He prompted his feelings by thinking that his parents and his sister had gone. No reaction. He thought of all the people he had been close to. No reaction. Then he thought of a complete stranger he had been standing behind in the queue at the supermarket before and felt a sudden stab. The supermarket was gone. 
Everything in it was gone. Nelson's column had gone. Nelson's column had gone and there would be no outcry because there was no one left to make an outcry. From now on, Nelson's column only existed in his mind. England only existed in his mind. His mind. Stuck here in this dank, smelly, steel-lined spaceship. A wave of claustrophobia closed in on him. England no longer existed. He'd got that. Somehow he got it. He tried again. America, he thought, has gone. He couldn't grasp it. He decided to start smaller again. New York has gone. No reaction. He never seriously believed it existed anyway. The dollar, he thought, had sunk forever. Slight tremor there. Every Bogart movie has been white, he said to himself, and that gave him a nasty shock. McDonald's, he thought. There is no longer any such thing as a McDonald's hamburger. He passed out. When he came round a second later, he found he was sobbing for his mother. He jerked himself violently to his feet. Ford! Ford looked up from where he was sitting in a corner, humming to himself. You always find the actual travelling through space part of space travel rather tiring. Yeah, he said. If you're a researcher on this book thing and you were on Earth, you must have been gathering material on it. Well, I was able to extend the original entry a bit, yes. Let me see what it says in this edition. I've got to see it. Yeah, OK. He passed it over again. Arthur grabbed hold of it and tried to stop his hand shaking. He pressed the entry for the relevant page. The screen flashed and swirled and resolved into a page of print. Arthur stared at it. It doesn't have an entry, he burst out. Ford looked over his shoulder. Yes, it does, he said. Down there at the bottom of the screen, just under Eccentrica Columbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. Arthur followed Ford's finger and saw where it was pointing. For a moment, it still didn't register. Then his mind nearly blew up. What? Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? Harmless? One word? Ford shrugged. Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy, and only a limited amount of space in the book's microprocessors, he said. And no one knew much about the Earth, of course. Well, for God's sake, I hope you managed to rectify that a bit. Oh, yes. Well, I managed to transmit a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. And what does he say now? asked Arthur. <laughs> Mostly harmless, admitted Ford with a slightly embarrassed cough. Mostly harmless, shouted Ford. What was that noise? hissed Ford. It was me shouting, shouted Arthur. No, shut up, said Ford. I think we're in trouble. You think we're in trouble? Outside the door were the sounds of marching feet. The den chassis, whispered Arthur. No, these are steel-tipped boots, said Ford. There was a sharp ring rap on the door. Then who is it? said Arthur. Well, said Ford, if we're lucky, it's just the Vogons come to throw us into space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, said Ford grimly, the captain might be serious in his threat that he's going to read us some of his poetry first. Chapter 7 Vogon poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of the Asgarath of Kriya, 
During a recitation by their poet master Gunthus, the flatulent of his poem Ode to a Small Lump of Green Putty, I found in my armpit one midsummer morning, four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging, and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobbling Council survived by gnawing off one of his own legs. Granthus is reported to have been disappointed by the poem's reception and was about to embark on a reading of his 12-book epic entitled My Favourite Bath-Time Gurgles when his own major intestine in a desperate attempt to save life and civilization, leapt straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. The very worst of all perished along with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, Essex, England, in the destruction of the planet Earth. Prostatnik Vogon Jout smiled very slowly. This was done not so much for effect as because he was trying to remember the sequence of muscle movements. He had had a terribly therapeutic yell at his prisoners and was now feeling quite relaxed and ready for a little callousness. The prisoners sat in poetry appreciation chairs, strapped in. Vogon suffered no illusions as to the regard their works were generally held in. Their early attempts at composition had been part of bludgeoning insistence that they had to be accepted as properly evolved and cultured race, but now the only thing that kept them going was sheer bloody-mindedness. The sweat stood out cold on Ford Prefect's brow and slid round the electrodes strapped to his temples. These were attached to a battery of electronic equipment, Imagery intensifiers, rhythmic modulators, alliterative residulators and simile dumpers, all designed to heighten the experience of the poem and make sure that not a single nuance of the poet's thought was lost. Arthur Dent sat and quivered. He had no idea what he was in for, but he knew that he hadn't liked anything that had happened so far and didn't think things were likely to change. Vogon began to read. A fetid little passage of his own devising. Oh, frettled Grandbugly, he began. Spasms racked Ford's body. This is worse than he'd even been prepared for. Thy micturations are to me as plurled glubbled blotchets on a lurgid bean. <laughs> Went Ford Prefect, wrenching his head back as lumps of pain thudded through it. He could dimly see beside him Arthur lolling and rolling in his seat. He clenched his teeth. Group, I implore thee, continued the merciless Vogon, my footling dwelling rooms. His voice was rising to a horrible pitch of impassioned stridency, and hoopsiously drangle me in thy crinkly bindle wordles, or I will rend thee in thy global words and my blunturings, see if I don't. <laughs> cried Ford Prefect, and through what final spasm at the electronic enhancement of the last line caught him full blast across the temples, he went limp. Arthur lolled. Now, earthlings, whirled the Vogon. He didn't know that Ford Prefect was, in fact, from a small planet in the vicinity of Beetlejuice and wouldn't have cared if he had. I present you with a simple choice. Either die in the vacuum of space or... He paused for melodramatic effect. Tell me how good you thought my poem was. He threw himself backwards into a huge leathery bat-shaped seat and watched them. He did the smile again. Ford was rasping for breath. He lolled his dusty tongue round his parched mouth and moaned. Arthur said brightly, Actually, I quite liked it. Ford turned and gaped. Here was an approach that had quite simply not occurred to him. 
Vaughan raised a surprised eyebrow that effectively obscured his nose and was therefore no bad thing. How good, he worded in considerable astonishment. Oh, yes, said Arthur. I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was really particularly effective. Ford continued to stare at him, slowly organising his thoughts around this totally new concept. Were they really going to be able to bareface their way out of this? Yes, do continue, invited the Vogon. Oh, and um, interesting rhythmic devices, too, continued Arthur, which seemed to uh, counterpoint the... Um, uh, he floundered. Ford leapt to his rescue, hazarding. Uh, Counterbalance the uh, surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the... Um, he floundered too, but Arthur was ready again. Humanity of the Vogonity! Ford hissed at him. Ah, yes, Vogonity, sorry. The poet's compassionate soul. Arthur felt he was on the home stretch now, which contrives through the medium of the verse structure to sublimate this, uh, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other. He was reaching a triumphant crescendo, and what is left of the profound and vivid insight into, um, um, which suddenly gave out at him. Ford leapt in with a coup de grace. Into whatever it was the poem was about, he yelled. Out of the corner of his mouth, well done, Arthur, that was very good. The Vogon perused them. For a moment, his embittered racial soul had been touched, but he thought, no, too little, too late. His voice took on the quality of a cat, snagging brushed nylon. So, what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, careless, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved, he said. He paused. Is that right? Ford laughed a nervous laugh. Well, I, I mean, yes, he said. Don't, don't we all, uh, deep down, you know, uh, the Vogon stood up. No, well, you're completely wrong, he said. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. Guard, take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. What? shouted Ford. A huge young Vogon guard stepped forward and yanked them out of their straps with these huge blubbery arms. You can't throw us into space, yelled Ford. We're trying to write a book. Resistance is useless, shouted the Vogon guard back at him. It was the first phrase he'd learnt when he joined the Vogon guard corps. The captain watched with detached amusement and then turned away. Arthur stared round him wildly. I don't want to die now, he yelled. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'll be cross and wouldn't enjoy it. The guard grasped them both firmly round the neck and, bowing deferentially towards his captain's back, hoiked them both protesting out of the bridge. A steel door closed and the captain was on his own again. He hummed quietly and mused to himself, lightly fingering his notebook of verses. Hmm, he said, counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. He considered this for a moment and then closed the book with a grim smile. Death's too good for them, he said. The long, steel-lined corridor echoed to the feeble struggles of the two humanoids clamped firmly under rubbery Vogon armpits. Oh, this is great, spluttered off. This is really terrific. Let go of me, you brute. The Vogon guard dragged them on. Don't you worry, support. I think of something. He didn't sound hopeful. Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard. Just don't say things like that, stammered Ford. How could anyone maintain a positive mental attitude if you're saying things like that? My 
God, complained Arthur, you're talking about a positive mental attitude and you haven't even had your planets demolished today. I woke up this morning and thought I'd have a nice relaxed day to do a bit of reading, brush the dog, and now after four in the afternoon and I'm already been thrown out of an alien spaceship six light years from the smoky remains of the Earth. He spluttered and gurgled as the Vogon tightened his grip. All right, said Ford, just stop panicking. Who said anything about panicking, snapped Arthur. This is still just the culture shock. You wait till I've settled down into the situation and found my bearings. Then I'll start panicking. Arthur, you're just getting hysterical. Shut up, Ford said desperately, trying to think, but was interrupted by the guard shouting again. Resistance is useless. And you can shut up as well, snapped Ford. Resistance is useless. Oh, give it a rest, said Ford, and twisted his head round to looking straight up into the captor's face. A thought struck him. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing? He asked suddenly. The Vogon stopped dead, with a look of immense stupidity seeping over his face. Enjoy? He boomed. What do you mean? What I mean, said Fordy's, does it give you a satisfying life, stomping around, shouting and pushing people out of spaceships? Vogon stared up at the low steel ceiling and his eyebrows almost rolled over each other. His mouth slacked. Finally, he said, well, yeah, is it good? They'd have to be, agreed Ford. Arthur twisted his head to look at Ford. Ford, what are you doing? He asked in an amazed whisper. Oh, just trying to take an interest in the world around me. Okay, he said. So the hours are pretty good then, he resumed. The Vogon stared down at him as sluggish thoughts moiled round in the murky depths. Yeah, he said. But now you kind of mention it. Most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy. Except, he thought again which required looking at the ceiling. Except some of the shouting I quite like. He filled his lungs and bellowed, Resistance is... Sure, yes, interrupted Ford hurriedly. You're good at that, I can tell. But if it's mostly lousy, he said, slowly giving the words time to reach their mark, then why do you do it? What is it? The girls, the leather, the machismo? Or you just find that coming to terms with the mindless tedium of it all presents an interesting challenge? Uh, said the guard. Uh, oh, I don't know. I uh, think I just sort of uh, do it, really. My aunt said that the space guard was a good career for a young Vogon, you know, the uniform, the low-slung stunray holster, the mindless tedium. There you are, Arthur, said Ford with the air of someone reaching the conclusion of his argument. You think you've got problems? Arthur rather thought he had. Apart from the unpleasant business with his home planet, the Vogon guard had half-throttled him already, and he didn't like the sound of being thrown out into space very much. Try and understand his problem, insisted Ford. Here he is, poor lad. His entire life's work is stamping around, throwing people off spaceships. And shouting, added the guard. And shouting, sure, said Ford, patting the blubbery arm clamped around his neck in friendly condescension. And he doesn't even know why he's doing it. Arthur agreed this was very sad. He did this with a small, feeble gesture because he was too asphyxiated to speak. Deep rumblings of amusement came from the guard. Well, now you put it like that, I suppose. Good lad, encouraged Ford. But all right, went on the rumblings. So what's the alternative? Well, said Ford, brightly but slowly, stop doing it, of course. Tell them, he went on, you're not going to do it any more. He felt he had to add something to that, but for the moment the guard seemed to have his mind occupied pondering that much. 
Um, said the guard. Uh, well, it doesn't sound that great to me. Ford suddenly felt the moment slipping away. Now, wait a minute, he said. That's just the start, you see. There's more to it than that, you see. But at that moment, the guard renewed his grip and continued his original purpose of lugging his prisoners to the airlock. He was obviously quite touched. Now, I think if it's all the same to you, he said, I'd better get you both shoved into this airlock and then get on with a bit more shouting I've got to do. It wasn't all the same to Ford Prefect after all. Come on now, but look, he said, less slowly, less brightly. <laughs> said Arthur without any clear inflection. But hang on, Paul's Ford. There's music and art and things to tell you about. I, I, Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard and then added, you see, if I keep it up, I can eventually get promoted to senior shouting officer. And there aren't usually many vacancies for non-shouting and non-pushing people about officers, so I think I'd better sit to what I know. They had now reached the airlock. A large circular steel hatchway of massive strength and weight led into the inner skin of the craft. The guard operated a control and the hatchway swung smoothly open. Well, thanks for taking an interest, said the Bogon God. Bye now. He flung Ford and Arthur through the hatchway into the small chamber within. Arthur lay panting for breath. Ford scrambled round and flung his shoulder uselessly against the reclosing hatchway. But listen, he shouted to the guard, there's a whole world you don't know anything about. How about this? Desperately, he grabbed the only bit of culture he knew offhand. He hummed the first bar of Beethoven's fifth. Da-da-da-da! Doesn't that stir anything in you? No, said the guard. Not really. But I'll mention it to my aunt. And there we leave Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Mm-hmm.